0: Into our hearts, into our hearts, come into our hearts, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in today. stay. Come into our hearts, Lord Jesus. That is always my prayer as I prepare to bring the message of God's Word. My name is Hal Brady, and I'm delighted you've joined me. As always, my prayer is that you'll be blessed both by the Word and the music. And oh yes, why don't you call somebody and ask them to join us. I would appreciate that. Our scripture lesson today comes from 1 Kings, chapter 19. Would you hear, please, the reading of God's word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with his sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones, and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the man of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice for him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, you shall anoint Hazael, a king over Aram. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you join me, please, for a word of prayer? Oh, God, how grateful we are for this opportunity of sharing your word. And how thankful we are for the people who make up this audience tonight. We ask, O God, that you would touch me and touch one of them through me, and the praise and the glory are always yours. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit we pray, amen. Ever had the props knocked out from under you? Sure you have, we all have. Undoubtedly, one of the most revered Americans who ever lived was Abraham Lincoln. And probably no one in public life knew more about defeat. Early in life, he lost in love, His career was a struggle against enormous odds with many failures. He went through a series of continuous political defeats until he was elected president of the United States. And even after being elected president, he was still ridiculed publicly. And of course, his private life was torn asunder. Later on, Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter to his friend, John Stewart, his law partner. And this is what he said, I am the most miserable man living. If what I fear were equally distributed to a whole human race, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Undoubtedly, Abraham Lincoln knew what it was to have the props knocked out. The late Dr. Frank Harrington said that in his first pastorate, he preached a sermon on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said he also gave the people in the congregation a 28-page paper dealing with the same subject because he couldn't cover it in one hour. He said, the next morning, a three-star general asked him to come to breakfast. He said, but he remembered those people leaving the service stunned as they stumbled out of the sanctuary with his papers. But as I said, the next morning, a general called him and asked him to go to breakfast with him. The general said, you're the smartest preacher we've ever had. You're the hardest-working preacher we've ever had. But he said... I want you to know that all those alternatives you're giving us is making us confused. Here was Frank Harrington, 25 years of age, staring at a 67-year-old three-star general who was a friend of of President Truman. And he said, General, I just want you to know, as as long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to make these people think I'm a man of my convictions. The general put down his fork, and he said, You're boring us to death. Frank Harrington said he learned a lesson from that conversation, but he said he also went down in the doldrums. He went down in the dumps. Which brings us up to Elijah and our scripture lesson. Here's another case of the props being knocked out of someone. Only a few hours earlier, on the top of Mount Carmel, Elijah had stood out as a giant among men. He had challenged the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal 450 of them, he had challenged them with his strong declaration, if the Lord be God, follow him. If the Lord be God, follow him. Later, he put the Baal prophets to a test. And as you remember, God and Elijah won that battle and the prophets were, were destroyed. Well, Elijah seemed to be on top. But then the next day, something happened. And he began to lose the props out from under him. What happened was King Ahab went back and told his queen Jezebel what had happened. Jezebel immediately sent word to Elijah and said, Tomorrow you are going to die. As I said, Elijah was sailing high, but then came that word and the props were dropped out. But Elijah, he decided to leave for his life. He ran out into a cave, and there he sat, as he also sat under the broom tree, He sat there sort of praying and saying, woe is me, woe is me. But then sometime later, God sent an angel to him, and this angel said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he told him, and then the angel restored the props, and he sent Elijah back into action, back into action. So God gave Elijah some insights, and it's these insights I want to share with you briefly tonight. First of all, there are no permanent victories. There are no permanent victories. Irving Berlin was correct when he said, the trouble with success is you have to keep on being a success. Elijah's spectacular victory over the Baal prophets was followed by a reaction. You might say he was suffering through the troublesome times of realizing that you cannot stay in any kind of permanent victory. Elijah couldn't understand how the public could follow him one day and Queen Jezebel the next. He even thought that in his problem, God had deserted him. In the midst of his tragedy, God was silent and God seemed absent. And so consequently, he felt that he was deserted. I reiterate, he was experiencing the trying times of those who realize that there are no permanent victories. As numbers of us realize, civilization itself is not attained by a single decisive battle or a quick victory, any way you look at it. Civilization is a matter of the long pull. It's a matter of millions of unknown, fateful people, preserving the gains that have been made, and knowing that those gains have nothing to do with a permanent victory. We Americans tend to think that you can put all of our freedom into just a few words spoken on the 4th of July. And yet we fail to realize that our freedom has to do with untold millions of men and women working hard trying to establish this nation as to what it is. Simply put, our American heritage owes its heritage to these unknown, toiling men and women who refuse to quit and who also realize that there are no permanent victories. And the same truth applies to businesses, it applies to churches, it applies to marriages, it applies to every area of life. Pat Riley was once the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team. He was comparing the attitude of the 1984 team that won the National Basketball Championship and the 1985 team that showed up for that next practice. He said the 1984 team was just full of cockiness. They knew they were the best. They said, we beat Boston. We beat Boston in Boston. We beat Boston with Larry Bird. At first, Coach Riley said the, the fact that they were going down appeared rather subtly. But then he said it appeared more and more. He said they stopped diving for the balls. He said then they stopped running hard. Some of them started showing up late to practice and leaving early. And he said there is no doubt as to why this team began the 1985 season near the cellar. And on the very night they were presented their 1984 championship rings, This 1985 team had been beaten by one of the seller team's 34 points. There are no permanent victories. That also applies to marriage. You know, we don't just have weddings, and that's it as far as marriage is concerned. Not long ago, I conducted a wedding ceremony, and I gave a, a little speech to the couple. After it was over, a married woman ran up to me in the hallway, and she said, I appreciated what you said about marriage. But she said, it's how you stay married that's so critically important. And I hope you'll address that sometime. Do you hear what that woman is saying? She's saying there are no permanent victories. There are no permanent victories in marriage, especially in marriage. And then what about our spiritual lives? What about our spiritual lives? I saw this, and it really makes me think about this. No permanent victories. Listen, every Sunday morning in a rural church, A man stood up and said, Brothers and sisters, 30 years ago in a little schoolhouse in Illinois, the Lord filled my cup full. He ain't put no more in and he ain't never took none out. It's full this morning, praise the Lord. At last one Sunday, old Uncle Jimmy decided it was time to challenge this testimony. Henry, he said, Did you say that the Lord filled your cup full 30 years ago? Yes, sir. And he ain't put nothing in since? No, sir. And he ain't took nothing out? No, sir. Then I'll guarantee you there's wiggle tails in it. Whether that story is true or not, it still has a tremendous truth. Unless our spiritual experiences are kept up to date, the experiences will go sour. They will go sour. We need to keep in mind there are no permanent victories. Beloved, God doesn't just give us a job to do, and then he says that's all there is to it. You can go off and have a vacation, or you can quit. That's not the way God works. You remember when he came to Elijah, he got Elijah out of his inactivity and told him to get on his feet and go back to Damascus and do the work that he had put him to do. All right, so that's the first thing. There are no permanent victories. And then secondly, self-pity is not the answer. Self-pity is not the answer. Elijah kept complaining to the Lord that he was the only one in all Israel that had stayed faithful, and yet now his life was going to be taken. So filled with self-pity, Elijah sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, complained Elijah. We can just feel sorry for ourselves, can't we? We really can. We can just get down in the dumps. We can say, woe is me, and make that our lifestyle, and indeed many do, and that is a great tragedy. I remember in my steward appointment, there was a woman who suffered some terrible tragedy. She lost three members of her family, but what she did was she just grieved from then on. She went into her house, she closed the door, she pulled the shades down on the windows, and she sat there in the dark all day. She refused to receive any visitors except me, and I did get to go in from time to time, but she just sat there and grieved. She continued in the valley of self-pity, day after day after day after day. Surely she had some great losses, but haven't we all had those losses? What a tragedy she lived in the land of self-pity. In his book, First Things First, John Gall warns us, look out for self-pity. It's one of the most overlooked, powerful, devastating, clever, insidious forms of evil because it's not recognized as evil it gets past our guard distorts reality self-pity takes away our sense of humor shuts down communication and stifles our creative process it makes us concentrate on ourselves miss the good we could do for others and blocks out the voice of God letting all that happen to us is what makes self-pity so pitiful my friend Bishop Bevel Jones told about a man he said his home life was so bad That one night, the dog started barking, came over to him, and he knew the dog wanted to go out, so he walked over to the door and opened the door. And the dog continued to go out. He didn't want to go out. Uh, The man said he wanted me to go out. So much for self-pity. You know that question Jesus asked the paralytic? It's still true. Do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? That was Elijah in self-pity. What happened? God sent an angel to him, and the angel said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah told him, and then the angel said to him, First of all, he said, Arise and eat. Arise and eat. Then he came back for a second time, and he said, Elijah, arise and eat so that the journey won't be too much for you. Then he came back a third time, and he said, I want you to arise and go out to the Mount of God. I want you to watch God out there on the mountain. It's not by the earthquake, wind, and fire. he saw God he saw him in the still small voice and the last time what he told Elijah this angel was go to Damascus and do the work that I have laid out for you to do Thomas Carlyle was one of the greatest writers of all time it took him four years to write this serious work and he copied every page by hand four years copying every page by hand Finally, he finished the work. He gave it to his friend, John Stuart Mill. He wanted him to read it for him, to see what he thought. John Stuart Mill began to read it. He recognized it was a classic literary piece, and he continued to read, and finally one night, he finished it. He was exhausted, and he simply put it down by the side of his chair. The next morning, the maid came in, and not knowing it was a manuscript, but seeing it on the floor, thinking it was trash, she threw it in the fire and burned it up. John Stuart Mill said he went to see Thomas Carlyle when he found out, and he was in deep regret, deep sorrow, deep apology. And he told Thomas Carlyle what had happened. Carlyle said, oh, that's all right. He said, I can begin again in the morning. But later, when John Stuart Mill left after more deep apologies, this man said he saw him walking over Thomas Carlyle. And he said to his wife, poor Mill, I was so disappointed I didn't want him to see how crushed I really was. He said, but oh well, the manuscript is lost. I'd better start over again. There comes a time in all of our lives when we have to get going, get moving, start again, and get it going. There is no place for self-pity in the Christian lifestyle. And then there are always moments of unexpected grace. There are always moments of unexpected grace. Queen Jezebel received the news of the disastrous defeat. Momentarily, she sent word to Elijah that he was going to die. Panic-stricken, he flew out of that place. He sat down under a broom tree in deep agony. As one scholar put it, in a few minutes, an, an angel came, and then he said there was a moment of unexpected grace. There's always a moment of unexpected grace. There's always a moment of unexpected grace because of the faithfulness of God. The same God who came to Elijah will come to us. The same God that helped Elijah reinterpret his life will reinterpret our own lives. The same God who came to Elijah to strengthen his life will come to us to strengthen our lives. You remember recently the Asiana air crash in San Francisco. You remember two people were killed and a number of people were injured and taken to the hospitals. There was a heroine among that group of people. She was one of the stewardesses. You remember she helped so many passengers to get off the plane. She freed one man who was trapped. She also carried a young person off on her shoulders who was too scared to move. And all the time she had a broken tailbone. She herself assisted people who were much bigger than she was. A moment of unexpected grace. Years ago I was taking a plane flight to Houston, Texas and I happened to be sitting there by a man who works for Six Flags Over Georgia. He said he was on the way to interview for a job at Six Flags Over Texas. And he said he and his wife had prayed that they would make the right decision. Believe it or not, the next morning I saw this same fellow in the airport and both of us were waiting on a flight back to Atlanta. And I said to him, well how did it go, how was your interview? He said it went fine but he said i'll tell you six flags over texas is not nearly as pretty as six flags over georgia and i said well i guess you'll have to sacrifice beauty for responsibility and then he said no i hope to make some beauty a moment of unexpected grace a minister friend of mine said that he was watching his sanctuary burn the sanctuary had caught on fire and it was burning and the fire department was keeping everybody from going to the sanctuary But he said he just had to see in, so he ran up to the door and he looked in. And the fireman was saying, come back, preacher, come back. You'll have to get away from the fire. But he said it was in that moment that he saw it. When he looked into the sanctuary and saw all that blaze all around him, he saw a banner, a single banner that was not burning. And what the banner said was, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It was a moment of unexpected grace. Now let me share another moment with you, and we'll bring this to a conclusion. There was a fifth-grade boy and a seventh-grade girl and a husband and father who were lost because of the death of the mother and the wife. This woman died at age 39, totally unexpectedly. But in a few years, there was another lady who came along with a daughter who had lost her husband and father, and they came and blended in with this family of three. So we had a family of five. You see, those five people found the power of grace in the dark. I know what I'm talking about here because, you see, I was that fifth-grade boy. That was my family. That was my family. There's a moment of unexpected grace. Whenever the props are knocked out, there's always a moment of unexpected grace. That is the most important thing that you'll get out of this sermon or any sermon. Always keep in mind there are moments of unexpected grace. Let us pray. Thank you, O oh God, for your grace in our lives. Thank you for those moments when we don't see them, don't expect them, and yet they come to us, reminding us that you love us and that you are with us. We pray, O oh God, for every person within the sound of my voice and in the sight of this picture. We pray that you'd bless them and meet them all at the point of their need. We'll give you the praise and the glory for all things. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this service tonight. I trust that the word and the music has been beneficial to you. I hope you have a good evening, good night, and God bless.
1: I had a dream.